Welcome to our continuing 2019 educational webinar series. I am Katherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager for First Healthcare Compliance. At First Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business, a hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have Andrew B. Wilson, an attorney and legislative specialist in Morris James LLP's Healthcare Industry and Government Regulations Groups with us today. Mr. Wilson assists clinicians and their practices through licensing questions, how to expand their business and billing, and regulatory compliance. He also acts as a voice in the healthcare policy discussion, speaking on behalf of physicians and the Medical Society of Delaware, advocating for patient access to efficient and cost-effective quality care. Mr. Wilson started his career as counsel in the New York State Senate. He was counsel to four senators, as well as to the Alcoholism and Drug Abuse Committee. In addition to building an expertise in health law and policy, Mr. Wilson has worked on many political campaigns ranging from volunteer to kitchen cabinet to statewide campaign manager where he has built an expertise in campaign and election law. He has been voted to top healthcare attorney by his peers in the Delaware Bar and received the 40 under 40 distinction from Delaware Business Times. He has received his BA degree from St. Lawrence University and his JD degree from Albany Law School. Mr. Wilson is a member of the American Bar Association, the American Society of Medical Association Council, and the Delaware State Bar Association, where he co-chairs the health law section. A copy of the slides is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box on your control panel during the presentation. We will address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM and PMI CEU certificates will be emailed to you following the broadcast. Your PACOM certificate will come directly from PACOM and your PMI certificate will come from our email. There is no need to request either one. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. A download of the handout is available with the button on the bottom right-hand side of your screen. So, Drew, welcome. Thank you so much, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Uh, I've been a big fan of the program for a while, so it's, it's, I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, we were chatting a little bit ahead of time, and I, I mean in all earnestness when I say that telemedicine is deeply exciting to me. Uh, I think it's almost uh, an inevitable wave of the future. Uh, and I think that most practices really do see it as an opportunity, as a way to bridge gaps to see their patients more efficiently. Uh, and if we're looking down at the future of healthcare in terms of how practices will be reimbursed, uh, telemedicine makes a lot of sense. And so for everyone tuning in, uh, our, our goals here today are really more of a high-level look at the issues that you might be questioning uh, if you're trying to figure out how healthcare, um, excuse me, how telemedicine and telehealth fits into your practice, um, how it fits into your workflow, uh, and how it uh, is reimbursed, essentially. Uh, we're going to use Delaware as a model, but don't let that scare you off. Delaware just happens to be my home state. 
Uh, I helped draft Delaware's uh, telemedicine law, House Bill 69, which we passed in 2015. Uh, as Catherine mentioned, uh, I'm, I'm a lawyer by day, but I, I really am a policy wonk at heart. Uh, I began in the New York State Senate. Uh, I have a background really in uh, addiction and opiate abuse, which has been a huge boon uh, considering the crisis that we're in now. Uh, and so I love the policy aspect of all this. So we're, we're, we might be a little policy heavy along the way, uh, but I'll use Delaware statute kind of as a guidepost. Um, uh, so I, I worked on the statute uh, during my time in-house at the Medical Society of Delaware. Uh, and so policy was the bread and butter and the medical society was really a, a voice and a leader in this segment along in partnership with the uh, Delaware Telehealth Coalition, which I think now is up to about probably 200 organizations around the state ranging from uh, you know, anywhere from like a, a direct to consumer telemedicine business to uh, your average practice to the, the state entities and myself even. I uh, sit on the telehealth steering committee today. So we're constantly looking at how to make a productive and conducive landscape for telemedicine here in Delaware. Uh, although there are states around the country that are fantastic models, you know, there's a lot of really good innovation and fantastic ways to use telemedicine that we're seeing out there. Uh, so while we're going to use Delaware, uh, it's uh, certainly in almost happening definitely in your own backyard. Uh, so uh, don't be don't be turned off by the Delaware aspect of it. <laughs> uh, and as a little bit of background in terms of how I, I got into the legal side of things, uh, you know, Medical Society of Delaware really has a mission for uh, how to make physicians' lives easier, uh, how to make practices run more efficiently. Uh, if you're a practice manager or you're a clinician, uh, and even if you're if you're employed or if you're in your own practice, you know that the practice of medicine has become wildly regulated over the last years, uh, especially in the last several years. Uh, it's become harder and harder to actually do the medicine. Uh, I, I hear on a daily basis from physicians who come to me and say, you know, I, I got into this business to help people and now I feel like I spend most of my time uh, filling data fields into uh, computer programs. And so it's not as fulfilling as it used to be. And so in that landscape, uh, if I say telemedicine, a lot of practices and a lot of clinicians will say, listen, that just sounds like another hassle. It sounds like another thing that's going to be like an EMR that's going to be really just make my life more difficult. Uh, and so there's, there's, and rightfully so, I mean, they, you know, practice of medicine has kind of been burned <laughs> a little bit by technology use, but uh, earnestly, I, I will say with, with every fiber of my being, I mean, telemedicine is not that that with the, the proper use of it, that it really is a, a practice saver, that it'll give you a healthier patient population and it'll ultimately end up saving you time. Uh, it also makes a lot of business sense, especially if you're in a state like Delaware that's passed some payment parity. Um, and so when I came into the law firm, it was really carrying that philosophy as well, saying that we are here to try to make physicians' lives easier and that physicians are people too, clinicians are people too. And so while I work specifically in healthcare, you know, we really do try to address everything uh, that surrounds a physician's life, a clinician's life, a practice manager's life, uh, everything from, you know, real estate closings to wills. Um, and so I've been very happy here at Morris James over the past several years. Uh, because I am an attorney, I'll give you just a very basic uh, um, sort of disclosure slash uh, um, kind of caveat here. So uh, this presentation cannot be considered legal advice. 
Uh, my presenting and you receiving the following information does not create an attorney-client relationship between us. Please consult an attorney to receive legal advice relating to the particular facts and circumstances of any questions or concerns you have relating to your practice. Uh, and of course, I'd be happy to help with that if at all appropriate. Uh, but uh, for today, we're, we're sort of talking high level. So uh, if we were in person, I, I would ask the group sort of earnestly a, a question of, you know, just off, uh, off the knee-jerk reaction coming into the room, what do most people think telemedicine is? Uh, and since this is a, um, uh, a webinar and I can't hear a lot of you right now, I'll, I'll ask it more rhetorically, uh, and I'll give you the answer, the technical answer. So what you see right now, this is the, the working definition of telemedicine, which is simply the remote diagnosis and treatment of patients by means of telecommunications technology. Uh, so to say it again, the remote diagnosis and treatment of patients by means of telecommunications technology. And I'm repeating it because it's, it seems like a very simple statement, but there's a lot of stuff packed in here that we'll kind of pack along, uh, unpack along the way. Um, so, you know, remote diagnosis, uh, you know, what a, how remote do we have to be? Um, diagnosis is the actual medicine of it. Well, diagnosis and treatment is the actual medicine of it. Um, yeah, I, I have a lot of, especially older physicians who are skeptical that telemedicine could ever play a role in the practice of medicine itself. Uh, and telecommunications technology, uh, whenever I throw out something like that, almost everybody thinks about some sort of future tech, um, some crazy scheme where like a battlefield medic could be wearing gloves and like there's a surgeon and a thousand miles away and, and there's uh, the surgeons doing the surgery and, and, and using these gloves so the battlefield medic is like, you know, doing, the, doing all the stuff on the wounded soldier. Anyway, the point being that it's, it's much more simple than that. And so let's do just kind of a level set here and look backwards before we look at where we are now. Uh, and so in 1925, uh, Hugo Gernsback is the, the namesake for the Hugo Awards for all you fellow sci-fi nerds out there. Uh, and in 1925, Hugo had envisioned what you see here, which is called a teledactyl. And so you'll notice a lot of familiar elements here. You have a screen, uh, you've got some wires, you've got your physician and your nurse, uh, and you've got your patient. And really what it was, um, you know, if we break the word apart, Teledactyl, tele means distance, dactyl means finger actually here. So what you're seeing is that you've got a patient who's far away, so they're distant, that's the telepart, uh, and you've got a physician using these uh, heat and pressure sensitive fingers that he's guiding remotely to feel the patient and do uh, uh, the medicine and the diagnosis. And so it's, it's not a new idea by any means. Uh, one of the classic real examples, although this was a future prognostication that we're almost 100 years from now, uh, is um, when we sent our astronauts to the moon, uh, all of the, the heart monitoring, all of the oxygen usage uh, monitoring, all of that stuff was really some of the basic use of, of telemedicine. Uh, you know, we think about when we send our Arctic explorers out um, we track them. We don't send the doctors along the way. We, we keep our doctors here at home, uh, but we care about how they're doing. And so we, we track them <laughs> and we, we provide medicine to them as best as we can uh, from a distance. Uh, and so uh, you know, there's, there's not, it, we have a strong tradition and, and those are very sort of outlandish examples, but they're very real examples of how telemedicine has been around for 50-something years, and if you want to be something very basic and mundane, 
almost every practice I've talked to ever <laughs> says that they'll see a, a patient in person and then they'll have a phone call later and follow up and see how people are doing, see how they're reacting to the meds, see how the healing of the incision is going. And that's also telemedicine. You're using telecommunications technology to bridge a gap to follow up on the medicine for the patient. Uh, and so it, it really is as mundane as that. Uh, but really what we're going to be talking about today is it looks a little bit more like this. So um, the technology that's proliferated, uh, you know, cell phones, smartphones are, are now everywhere. Almost every computer has some sort of, of uh, if it doesn't have a, a, a camera built in it like a, like a laptop, you can add one like at the desktop on the top right. Uh, so the, the technology is actually incredibly common. Uh, there was a very, very brief moment in time when uh, hospital systems in particular were investing in these big honking $20,000, $30,000 carts um, that were being pulled around room to room. And because that was kind of the, the early viewpoint of it, that's the image that got stuck in people's minds. Uh, but that's not really <laughs> what we're talking about now. Uh, right now, the technology is, is deeply accessible. Uh, and part of it's because of the investment that we've made. There's actually a, a recent Forbes article, uh, I think just in July, that was estimating that by 2021, the telemedicine industry as a whole, and there's a lot packed into there, will be worth about $66 billion. Um, the VA even has been uh, investing almost 1.8 to almost $2 billion a year in their telemedicine, uh, and they've been really a, a driver of, of policy because they're trying to figure out how do they get their clinicians uh, from a concentrated area out to a vast population of veterans. Uh, and that's no different than if you think about your own patients and how you're supposed to reach them. It, it's good to know that the tools are as simple as what you probably have in your pocket and in front of you right now. Um, how you use that, though, so the, the one that we think about the most when we think about telemedicine, or we should, is, is the live video. So uh, you think about a, like a FaceTime or a Skype or as sort of the, the, the everyday uh, commercial avenues for that kind of thing. Um, store and forward asynchronous. Uh, it, that sounds kind of bizarre, but it's as simple as if you're in pathology or radiology. If you took an x-ray uh, and you, you know, put it into a computer and you sent it over by email and then you talked about it with the other physician later during a consultation, that's an asynchronous telemedicine visit. It's, it's as simple as that. Um, it could also be taking somebody's history ahead of time so that you've got all of their information in front of you without even seeing the patient. So somebody else, uh, a nurse or even a meta, uh, an MA, does the, the intake and the, the history and then uh, remotely. And then the, the uh, physician, when they're actually doing the, the, the actual exam in person, uh, has that information in front of them. There's a, an asynchronous uh, collection and, and use. Uh, remote patient monitoring. Uh, so I'll kind of loop that for a moment in with mHealth. You know, a lot of us have Apple Watches or Fitbits, um, and it can be as simple as that in terms of the, the clinical data that's being collected on them uh, being used by the clinician later to track them. But it, of course, that's, those are very basic examples. They can become incredibly elaborate as well. Uh, I, I've uh, worked with a practice in the past that has um, has been following uh, asthma patients essentially, and and they don't know when an asthma patient is is using their inhaler, uh, and so they they actually have kind of a twofold prong on it where they are able to they put a little sensor on the asthma inhaler, and every time the patient uses the uses the inhaler, it sets the trigger off, 
so that they have a data point on, oh, look, like the patient actually used the inhaler then uh, or the nebulizer. And then uh, you can also track things like, you know, um, you can put like a band around their chest so you can see how they're breathing and their heart rate and the like. So the point being that you don't have to be with the patient to be collecting very, very important clinical data. Um, and mobile health, mHealth uh, is a broad topic. It's also relatively controversial right now, not because of the potential, potential of the field, uh, but because the regulation of it is kind of spotty. It's, it's very easy to bring, uh, to make a, a phone app, for instance, and, and put it on uh, iTunes. <laughs> uh, and people start downloading it thinking that it's been you know, fully vetted and, and brought to the market and is, is a safe medical tool. And that's not always the case. So uh, out of all the different modalities, that, that's one area that I'd urge a little bit of caution. Uh, but that can be a, a whole other presentation <laughs> for another day. Um, so let's talk just some basic terminology here. Uh, so for purposes today, uh, telemedicine uh, is more about the patient to practitioner, that discrete interaction, uh, the actual medicine that is delivered. Uh, telehealth is kind of everything around it. Uh, it's an umbrella term. So telemedicine is in it, uh, but it's also things like the patient records, you know, patient education, uh, uh, follow-ups, uh, the sort of the non-medical interactions. Um, and this one is, is the following two terms are ones that get backwards all the time. So the uh, <laughs> most, most providers that I work with, uh, the intuitive way that they think about it is that the medicine originates from them. It's their expertise and their diagnostic skills. Um, but from a telemedicine and telehealth standpoint, the originating site is with the patient uh, and the distant site is with the provider. Uh, and so the, 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 patient, the, the medicine really starts with the patient itself in, a, in, a, in sort of telemedicine lingo. Uh, and that's important for uh, later in the presentation when we talk a little bit more about uh, compliance and licensing, uh, because you always have to think about where the patient actually is. So this is a very wordy slide, but um, along the way, I just want to give you examples of language from, telemedicine, uh, from Delaware's telemedicine law. Um, and actually, the citation uh, throughout, I've, I've got 16 throughout. It's actually Title 24 if there are lawyers looking in and then they want to go and try to fight it. Um, but this is a very basic definition of telemedicine. Again, uh, a form of telehealth, uh, which is the delivery of clinical health care services. Um, and then I'm going to kind of skip down because there's a lot of stuff baked in there. Uh, but you've got, uh, um, it's the patient health care. Patient's health care by a health care provider practicing, so we're down here, um, within his or her scope of practice that would be practiced in person with the patient. Um, and so we, it's easy when we're talking in statutory language, uh, when we're talking about telemedicine, if you're a practice and you're thinking about telemedicine, uh, most practitioners will think of telemedicine as something other, something different than what they do now. And really, the if there's one thing that you really take away from the day, it's not that telemedicine is not something else. Um, you can't practice to a different standard of care just because you're using telemedicine. The medicine is the standard of care of what you do now in person. And so um, if, if you, and even if you're a telemedicine practitioner right now, um, I'd urge you to kind of think about what you're doing in terms of how you're delivering your health care and, and uh, your uh, uh, services to patients and really kind of take a step back. I, I'll, get pra I'll get practices all the time, all the time, who will call me and say, hey, can I do, can I do this uh, type of medicine? Can I, can I deliver this kind of treatment? And I, inevitably, I almost always turn it around because I, I'm not a practitioner. 
uh, in fact, you know, if, if the worst case scenario happened and we you know, wound up in court for some reason, I would actually be calling another physician <laughs> uh, to try and get their expert testimony. I mean, my, my opinion of it is not what's important. What's important is that I turn it around and I say, well, do you think that if that patient was directly in front of you inside of your practice that you could do it that way? And then that's kind of the way to think about it because you, you can't lower your standard of care because you're using technology and you're, you're apart from the patient. Um, and so a classic example uh, that pops up all the time is, and it's a heated debate, quite frankly, <laughs> is whether or not things like ear infections can be done via telemedicine. And so, uh, you know, the, the obvious answer from my perspective is that, you know, if you are a physician using telemedicine, um, there's, or just using medicine at all, you know, the first thing you do is, is you know, pull the, the patient into your exam room and uh, you'd look in their ear <laughs> and see what you can see. And so if you're just over the phone, uh, you almost definitely can't see in their ear. You're kind of taking their description. They might not have the right words. They might have the vocabulary to really describe what's happening to them. Um, and if you're using an audio and a visual, which is, is kind of the gold standard and often the, we'll talk about it later, uh, the required way to be seeing patients in Delaware, at least, uh, you know, the audio-visual portion of it, I mean, you've got to be able to see inside of the ear, and you've got to be able to deliver the medicine as though you were in person. Uh, and so that's sort of the telemedicine portion of it. And again, telehealth from a statutory standpoint in Delaware, it, this is um, a bunch of words that basically says that it's everything else. <laughs> um, and I don't want to just kind of leave that aside too too lightly because the in my mind, as as much potential as there is in using technology to make that that clinician patient interaction uh, as best and efficient and and in the continuity of care as possible, um, the telehealth portion of it to me is also deeply exciting because if medicine is about is is an art, it's always changing. Uh, it's expanding all the time. There's a reason that we don't in statute say, um, you know, uh, Dr. X must do these three things for patient Y when they present with these things. It just doesn't make any sense to do it that way. There has to be a lot of discretion and latitude uh, for the evolution of the tools, uh, for the practice of medicine to advance. And so to my mind, telehealth is actually a great way to, to spread that knowledge throughout the clinician community. Um, uh, uh, a, a classic example or a recent example, I suppose, um, is like Project Echo uh, has a phenomenal sort of like um, the grand rounds using telehealth where essentially you can tune in from just about anywhere. Uh, and, you know, they do fantastic ones on opiate abuse and sort of best practices uh, on how to treat patients that are presenting uh, you know, with uh, addiction. And so it's, that's an area that's evolving all the time because it is such a crisis and so it's been fantastic to see it as a tool and see the telehealth aspect of it really proliferate. Uh, another thing coming back to the idea of other. So there are a couple different models out there for telemedicine, um, really two main ones. There's, there's telemedicine as the discrete patient interaction like we've been talking about. And it's really continuity of care through technology. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm in my early 30s. Uh, I see my primary care doc in person once a year. Um, but that doesn't mean I only get sick once a year. I just go in for an annual visit. What uh, the continuity of care would be is that if my physician used telemedicine and I got sick along the way, uh, you know, nothing too crazy, um, 
you know, what I could do is rather than go to a walk-in clinic or use a, a sort of an outside telemedicine product, if my physician used telemedicine, I could speak to my physician um, without having to go into the office, which can often be uh, you know, scheduled out very far or it can be very difficult to actually get there. Uh, I have a you know, busy career, young daughter, that kind of thing. It's just it's life gets hectic. And so the point being that inside the continuity of care is probably the best and is the best model of telemedicine. But that doesn't mean that the secondary model, and this is what most people and most practices think of when they think medicine, and unfortunately a lot of insurance companies think this too, and, and large employers, is, is this kind of other. Um, and what I mean by that is that most telemedicine companies, if you think of a telemedicine company, it's kind of like the, the Uber list of medicine where they'll, you'll have clinicians who basically sign up um, with a telemedicine company and they'll agree to take however many telemedicine visits a week, be it by visit or by hour, and they'll kind of sign up and say, you know, I'll give you from 2 to 3 o'clock on Thursday, I'll kind of turn on my light, and patients who call into your network, um, I will see them. Um, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that model if you think about it in terms of uh, a direct-to-consumer physician. It's not a new physician. We don't, there's not some, some ghost workforce out there that exists <laughs> just because we have this direct-to-consumer model. It's really your colleagues. It might even be you. Uh, and it's, it's you figuring out where in your schedule, where in your time makes sense, where you can kind of pick up a little side hustle. Um, and it's, it's sort of one and done interactions. And so uh, a patient will call into one of these models and uh, they'll, they'll get connected to a physician. It's not their physician, but it's, it's a physician, um, not too different than going to a walk-in clinic. Uh, and the physician will deliver a discrete service and then the telemedicine encounter will end and the patient will go about their business, and if they need a follow-up and they call back, uh, they're going to get a different physician. And so we've completely broken up the continuity of care. Um, we've also added on an additional cost, and so uh, you know, each one of those visits is probably on average about $40. And so if you're looking at it from an insurer standpoint or a public health advocate or you know, a governor with a 6% healthcare cost inflation rate, and you're saying, well, this seems like just another thing, um, it kind of is. It's, it's another thing. I mean, maybe you saved an urgent care visit. Um, it's certain, maybe you saved an emergency department visit, but it, you're not building out your foundation of care, your primary care with this other model. And so really, the, and the only thing that, that keeps us from having the first model, from having the continuity of care for, for patients, is, is frankly just uh, adoption and figuring out where to fit it in your workflow of your very own practice. Uh, and you know, and I'll note there, there, is, there is room for kind of a blend of these two things. Uh, so there's, uh, there's a company, for instance, that they make essentially kiosks, and they, they put them out into public spaces, essentially. And so rather than go to a walk-in clinic, um, a patient will go to one of these kiosks, and the ideal situation is that they go into a kiosk, and they, this kiosk has uh, a direct connection back to a primary care network, and hopefully their primary care. And so there's a, a chance at least then at that point where the, the patient sort of plugs into this kiosk and the kiosk is able to identify their practice, that they, their home practice, um, and connect you back at least to at least the same building. <laughs> uh, and so there, there is sort of a middle ground hybrid uh, possibility out there. And I'm sure that there are other models as well. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about these four topics, some billing basics, some licensing and regulations, and some legislation. Uh, strategies for your own practice and, and a little bit of ethics along the way here. 
Uh, and, you know, let's talk quickly about goals. So, you know, access, cost, and outcomes are kind of the basic elements that we talk about all the time, be it in an in individual practice, uh, be it, again, a, a big picture, looking out at a healthcare system that works best for a, a population of a city or a state or, or even the country. These are kind of the different elements that we're always trying to figure out. Um, and they're all deeply important because medicine still is the business. Um, the cost part is as important as anything else, um, but we're always looking at, well, what is, what is the best way that we can increase the most services to the most population, that, the most patients that need them, but then what's going to be the cost of that, and then we're going to ask ourselves, what's the outcome of, of that? Um, individual practice standpoint, you're going to be asking yourself, okay, is it efficient? Is it worth it from a reimbursement standpoint? Um, from a public health goal, you're trying to figure out how do you get a healthier population. Um, from a patient standpoint, you know, I'll tell you that I'm looking for convenience. Uh, it's, you know, it is, we've all gotten a lot busier. Uh, uh, but even on top of that, our population has gotten older uh, and it's gotten sicker. And so if you think older and sicker, it's harder to get around. Uh, and it also means much more costly. So, you know, we'll talk about a little bit more later about, you know, sort of telemedicine, uh, excuse me, healthcare 2.0 in terms of payment structures, but those are kind of the elements that we're all batting around here. Uh, so drilling down a little bit and going into the trenches, uh, practices will, all the good practices especially, uh, will ask me a couple of sort of threshold questions. I mean, of course, is it safe? Um, and so what information is being stored, you know, that is being that's that's being a, a savvy practice manager or a savvy clinician is saying, well, I'm I, you know I'm, I'm a little bit worried about cybersecurity, um, you know if it's Equifax or Marriott, you know we're we're all kind of hearing about data breaches, um, you know what about HIPAA is one of those questions that gets tossed out in just about any healthcare conversation that's had that we've had since the dawn of HIPAA, <laughs> um, and you know those two questions can be hours and hours hours long of presentations. Um, the, what I'll leave you with here today, very importantly, is that it's not, telemedicine doesn't add too much complication to your life in either of these things. Um, if you're, for instance, if you're already using an EMR, which I, I hope you are, um, you should be doing your security checks. Um, your, a lot of the hacking and a lot of the cybersecurity concerns that we have these days are, aren't sort of the brute force hacking, like, um, you know, the Russians aren't, you know, trying to break your firewall. It's more phishing. So people pretending that they're patients, um, people who are hopping onto your unsecured Wi-Fi, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really sort of more of meat and potato things that you should be thinking about anyway. Um, and, you know, you'll hear the term a lot like, oh, is this HIPAA compliant? Uh, and, and I can tell you from a practice standpoint and from a compliance standpoint, HIPAA compliance is really based around the people. It's about the users and not the technology. The technology, you can ask if it's HIPAA secure, um, but really at that from that perspective, you're really looking for like basic encryption. I mean, most of the time, like FaceTime will have this, the level of encryption that you need. And if you're going out and you're, you're finding a telemedicine vendor that's going to come in and, and help build your platform, again, which are very inexpensive, uh, you know, they will make sure that the encryption is there. Um, and most of the time, a lot of these things, from a compliance standpoint, uh, what HIPAA is going to be looking for is, is accountability. Um, so it's, the encryption is kind of the safe conduit from uh, one place where protected uh, health information, PHI, it lives to another place, so point A to point B, telemedicine kind of being the conduit. 
if it's encrypted, you, you basically check the box on, on the HIPAA security, and then they're going to want to ask to make sure that from a, an accountability standpoint, your practice kind of being point A, or probably point B, but uh, the point being that on either end of that conduit, they're going to want you to, to have some sort of business associate agreement, a BAA, uh, to make sure that there's accountability on either side. But for a lot of telemedicine, uh, HIPAA has this carve-out exception for where if you're, if you're simply the conduit, they care that you're secure, but if you're not holding any of the information, they don't particularly care that you have a BAA. But I will tell you, as a best practice, you should have a BAA with everybody. Um, but, you know, Apple's probably not going to sign a BAA with you. <laughs> uh, and that's okay. Um, but if you're storing patient information on a cloud, you've got an Amazon cloud, you know, they, they will. You know, they, they, have, um, they have the tools uh, to do that. Um, Peripherals, so, you know, a lot of telemedicine, if you want to get, depending on the type of medicine you have, um, they make amazing and affordable peripheral tools. And all, all that is really is a HIPAA secure tool that goes out into uh, the patient world. And uh, you don't have to be at the practice, but let's say you've got a nurse or a medical assistant on the other end, you know, they can take this peripheral tool um, like an otoscope or whatever, and they can use it on the patient and have that information come back to you lifetime. Um, so the point being that there's amazing technology tools that are also, because of the proliferation and the investment, have become very affordable. Um, and I really can't harp on this, this third point enough, uh, what is standard of care? And really, there, again, telemedicine is not an other. There is no separate, you're never going to like take a board in telemedicine. Telemedicine is simply the technology which means that your standard of care is going to be the exact same as if you were practicing in person. Um, and really, if you use that as, as your guiding principle, no matter what you do, it's really hard to go wrong in, in a telemedicine program. So again, you can, whenever you have a question on whether or not you can do something, is that standard of care, just flip around and, and, and ask yourself, you know, what a, you know, a, a minimally <laughs> Uh, competent uh, physician or cl similarly uh, positioned clinician, would they do this? Uh, and if you think that answer is yes, then you can probably do it. Uh, and it uh, is much broader than you think once you start to think it through. Uh, the next big question, uh, especially if you're a doctor, you, you're, you are concerned about your ethics. The AMA, we're not going to read all this, but the AMA has fantastic guidance out there. Uh, the specialty societies themselves have great guidance out there. Uh, I definitely recommend uh, checking that out. Um, and the, uh, the specialty societies themselves also have, uh, a lot of them now have telemedicine-specific guidance. Um, and again, the, the beauty of the guidelines is that they're changing all the time. So uh, I definitely recommend that you just, you know, keep light tabs uh, on that sort of thing. Uh, so Delaware in 2015, uh, this is uh, former Governor Markell, he was term limited out, uh, has, is signing our, our, our House Bill 69 here. Uh, he's, uh, Delaware became, I, I think we were the second state, but now a lot of states have followed us um, to have a bill that had a couple very important components that we'll talk about, um, uh, pay, uh, payment parity being one of them. Uh, so every practice and every practice manager is always curious how they're going to get paid for this, uh, which is absolutely appropriate. Uh, and the second piece was really about patient safety uh, and, and trying to create kind of guidance overall and, and kind of the bumpers on this uh, telemedicine uh, freeway. Uh, and so as an example of some of the language here, again, wordy, I understand. Uh, it's, uh, this is our, our Delaware's basic definition of 
establishing the physician-patient relationship. So several slides ago, I showed you Delaware's telemedicine law, like the definition of telemedicine and the definition of telehealth. And this is kind of how you use it. And so Delaware, we expect you to build some sort of physician-patient relationship. There are four ways to do it. I mean, the gold standard from the continuity care standpoint is that you're seeing a patient that you already know. Um, so uh, I, I already I have a relationship with my primary care doctor. Um, you know, if my primary care doctor adopts telemedicine, I'm able to use it with them. Um, you we've clearly established a relationship, and that's great. Um, the second piece is uh, the second option is you've got a Delaware like licensed practitioner at the at basically with the patient at the time of the diagnosis. Um, and so uh, a good way to think about this is that the, if you are uh, a, a physician who's overseeing a couple different sites, um, you have a couple of advanced practice nurses and a couple PAs. Um, if you if you have a, a patient uh, at one of those sites and you're you know at, at they're at site A with with your PA and you're at site B, um, as long as the PA is there to kind of help be your eyes and ears and your prodder, um, that's enough to kind of establish the relationship. You're going to fit through the statute and you can do a telemedicine visit. Um, the third option is um, probably the most uh, proliferating. This is the audio visual. Um, Delaware regulation makes it very clear that a phone only is never going to be enough. So if you've never talked to this patient before, you've never met a patient, you cannot establish a physician-patient relationship just using the phone. Um, and so Delaware is very clear to do that in statute. Um, and then the fourth piece, and this is where it got a little bit sticky at one point, and, and we can address that more later if there's time, um, was if you're following clinical practice guidelines, if you're following evidence-based clinical practice guidelines developed by a major specialty society, so that, that's a whole one big thought. Um, if, if, like the, if the American Academy of Psychiatry puts out a, a guideline um, and you're a psychiatrist, you're allowed to follow that. And so if there are certain situations where a phone-only interaction might be okay for a first visit and you've got the, the evidence-based guidelines to back that up, we're going to let you do it. Again, because telemedicine and medicine adapts so fast, um, we did want to leave some room in the statute. Um, mechanically, there are mechanical steps in Delaware statute as well um, to establishing a, rela a relationship. And they're, they're really kind of intuitive once you unpack it. So um, you want to know where the patient is. You want to know where you are. You want to tell them who you are and, and you know, what, you, <laughs> what you are. So your doctor or your nurse or, or your PA. Um, you want appropriate consent. Um, and so there's there's some uh, as much as the standard of care and the medicine is the same. Uh, a telemedicine consent may do something like um, kind of jumping down to nine uh, number five here. Um, you want to make sure that there's backup. You want to make sure that there's uh, places for people to go. So that there's a power out outage or if the the call drops because you got spotty service, you just want to make sure that the patient's aware of that ahead of time. It's it's sort of discreet and and really kind of nominal risks um, to the technology itself that you'd want to put out there. Um, number three, you know, standard of care is still going to matter. Um, you know, number four is you're discussing and walking your patient through it. Um, and then we talked number five and number six is really, and this, this comes back to we always wanted to make sure that even if, even if the patient was choosing to go to, again, kind of that urgent care model, that direct-to-consumer model of telemedicine, we wanted the opportunity, one, for the patient to have their own information. Um, so after that visit was over, you have to give a written summary. And ideally, um, the DIN in Delaware is the Delaware Health Information Network. Um, and it is, 
this is a vast oversimplification. It does way more than this, but it's sort of our community health record. So the ideal idea was if we can get the care summaries at least into the DIN, um, there's a good chance that the practice can later find it. So the primary care doctor can go find that interaction. And so the idea is we were really trying and, and still are really trying to make sure that continuity of care um, is, is the, the gold standard. Um, and we're constantly trying to figure out the best thing to do. So back in 2016, a year after we passed that initial bill, you know, we wanted to make it very clear that we weren't trying to impede anything about the, the traditional practice of pathology and radiology, as we talked about before, you know, taking an x-ray and shooting it over. We wanted to make sure that still worked. Um, and uh, once you establish the relationship, we wanted to make it very clear that, again, coming back to the, the very common and, and existing practice where you know, if you see a patient in person and, and you've followed up by a phone call, we want to be absolutely clear that that's completely fine. Uh, in fact, it's encouraged. Like you, we want practices to be following up with their patients without having to worry about uh, the telemedicine statute. Um, in the future, uh, Delaware is really, uh, like everywhere, is really struggling with an opiate crisis still, an addiction crisis. Um, we've been trying to figure out how do we use medically assisted treatment and telemedicine. Uh, there is a narrow avenue right now in our regs um, that you might consider if you're a policymaker in another state, which basically allows our health and health and uh, social services to bless a telemedicine program to say, yes, like we trust you to be able to, to uh, prescribe opiates because a medically assisted treatment is basically treating an opiate with an opiate. And right now there's a complete ban on opiates and telemedicine in Delaware, at least. Um, so we're trying to create safe uh, avenues for that. Um, and then also on-call language. Uh, some other states have struggled with this, where um, some there, there were some some questionable models out there that were allowing patients to designate a certain physician as an on-call physician. Um, it, a little bit of a rabbit hole, but the point being that there is a very legitimate purpose and a very easy purpose um, for uh, uh, patients being able to follow up with uh, uh, colleagues in the same practice. So you know, Doctor X and Doctor Y work together. Um, Dr. X's patient, uh, you know, needs access to that to that practice, and Dr. X isn't there. You know, rather than forcing them into an urgent care, um, you know, we want to make sure that if that practice is ready to do telemedicine, that Dr. Y can pick it up um, and be able to help cover that patient. And so we're trying to figure out the best way uh, to work that into the statute and just make it very clear um, that we do want um, continuity of care in, in telemedicine in Delaware. Uh, probably the most important part for all the people on this call, um, payment. <laughs> uh, payment is, is the constant question. Um, you know, Delaware is one of the few states that really uh, specifically calls for parity. Um, and so there, there are a lot of states that have been struggling with this. Um, you know, there's, we had policymakers coming to us and saying, I don't understand why telemedicine would be as expensive as a brick and mortar visit. Um, you know, you're not, you're not using the building, you know, there's not a lot of staff, it's just this discrete sort of bare bones interaction. Um, and there, there's a lot sort of baked in there. So, so again, there's not some separate workforce like up in the clouds. <laughs> the, the, uh, the workforce that we have are the workforce that we have. So, um, you know, these, these doctors are doctors that, that are in practices that are figuring out when they can sort of uh, participate in one of these models. So there, there is a brick and mortar to it. Um, and secondarily, and probably the most from a policy perspective, is that we're, we're going to get what we pay for. Um, and, and this is not some snarky throwaway comment. If you, what I mean by it is if you don't pay, as a policymaker, if you don't pay 
at least the same rate for the exact same medicine, because again, we're paying for, it, ideally, the clinician's expertise, their diagnostic ability, all that training, uh, you know, their, their boards, all of this, that we've got a very specialized person um, who we're trusting to diagnose. And so if we're not paying for that, first off, the medicine is the same, so you're paying for the same service, in theory. Um, but almost more importantly, if you drop the reimbursement for telemedicine, there's no, in fact, there's, you're creating a disincentive for existing practices to work this into their continuity of care. And in fact, the way that we worded it was that if a savvy insurer wanted to create a, a primary care telemedicine program, we gave them room to pay more. Like if you want to incentivize to uh, bring, bring the, give room for, uh, for practices to really want to do this, we gave room for that. Um, but at least you've got to pay the same because if you're paying anything less, then all you're doing is creating an incentive for practices to, to join uh, direct-to-consumer models where they're just turning on the light and getting 20 bucks and going home. They need to, if, you, if you're earnestly trying to work it, work it out from a policy perspective and build telemedicine into your, especially your primary care infrastructure, you, you have to have parity. So I, I, Michigan, for instance, when they passed their parity law, they saw something like a 77 to 78% increase in, in telemedicine visits. You know, there, so parity is, is deeply uh, impactful. Um, so as, as much as I, I, I give on that one, uh, I have to take a little bit <laughs> away, unfortunately. So um, the really bad news is that any state law can only go so far. Um, so we, we can, uh, you know, so through your various insurance codes, um, no matter what state you're in, like we, the state of Delaware, the state of New York, the state of Texas, uh, Oklahoma, and none of us can tell Medicare what to do. Um, and so Medicare has got its own prog pro uh, uh, program, it's got its own patient population. Delaware cannot say to Medicare, thou shalt pay parity for telemedicine. Uh, nor can we tell uh, ERISA plans. So if you're a large self-insured plan, um, we can't tell you what to do either because you're protected from federal law standpoint. Um, we can uh, tell our Medicaid program what to do, and, and Delaware, we asked. Um, we, we asked, and actually Medicaid sort of jumped on the bandwagon before we even finished the bill. So, uh, so Medicaid was already paying for telemedicine, which was fantastic. We, we can ask, um, you know, the state of Delaware is one of the biggest employers in the state, so we can, we can ask or tell them and say, hey, listen, we really want you to be part of this. You know, can you bring your lives in, and can you adopt a, a telemedicine parity? Um, there's also a statute where you can tell them to do that, but, you know, hearts and minds are good. <laughs> uh, and then we can tell the commercial market uh, and the marketplace what to do as well. And so in, in Delaware's parity law, we reach probably half the population, um, which is great. Uh, from a practice standpoint, it does mean that there's a little inconsistency where if your patients come in and they're handing you an insurance card, um, you know, you've got a little due diligence to do to figure out, okay, what kind of plan is that patient in? Uh, you know, is, am, I, am I getting a card from a large employer or am I getting a card from a commercial payer? So there's a, just a little bit of background to do, and that, and that can be a deterrent. Uh, but I, I encourage you to kind of fight your way through that, especially if you're in a state like Delaware where our hospital systems have been fighting really hard to try to build those, those clear pathways. Um, and just because we can't tell ERISA plans what to do, um, we've actually been working really hard in Delaware to approach those plans and say, this makes sense for you. I mean, you, you want your workforce to be able to uh, access telemedicine services inside of the practice that they're already seeing. 
that it makes perfect sense from a policy and population standpoint it, it that it, it will be a, a cost uh, it'll drive your trend down as opposed to being an additive service because a lot of employers um, not really understanding the nuance here they're going out and just signing a contract with a telemedicine service because they went to Google and typed in telemedicine and so they, they get a, and they know that it's important for some reason and so they go out and they, they get a contract but they haven't actually solved the problem. <laughs> uh, but education, it goes a long way. In a state like Delaware, uh, we can do that. Um, larger states, I mean, I, I would sort of pick your prizes. Um, you know, your, your Chamber of Commerce might be a good place to start. Uh, and one way or the other, I got to tell you that this problem is really a moment in time. So even Medicare, so Medicare does not cover telemedicine at all in Delaware. It might in your larger states. Because the threshold question that Medicare cares about is if you're rural or not. And so nowhere in Delaware, and there's a secondary question on if you're a healthcare provider shortage area, area HIPSA, um, and nowhere in Delaware qualifies even over the rural designation. There's zero rural designations in Delaware. <laughs> um, upstate New York, where I'm originally from, I'm actually from the Adirondacks, which is woods, um, and that's all uh, rural. And so my parents actually live seven minutes from a hospital. Uh, and they live across the street from their primary care doctor. Um, and so, but Medicare will pay for that. But they won't in southern Delaware where we have farmers that live hours away from care. Uh, and Medicare just hasn't gotten over this initial sort of threshold question that really from a telemedicine program standpoint, it's not the distance in terms of miles that matters, it's the barriers in people's lives. So if you have a patient who's bedridden and they could be down the street, but the likelihood of them and the difficulty of them being able to make their way down to you, like that's really what we're trying to address. We're trying to overcome these types of barriers. And one way or the other, moving into the future, you know, we're moving away from a fee-for-service. I think fee-for-service will always be an element in any model that we go to. But as you become more responsible for keeping your patient population healthy, you're going to want to make sure that your population is taking their medication. You're going to want to make sure that the treatment that is working. You want to be available to ensure that your patient doesn't go back into uh, the hospital uh, in the middle of the night. And telemedicine is going to be the way that you're going to do that. Um, it's going to be the technology that connects you to your patient population. And so if you're able in the fee-for-service model world that we're in still for, for the moment, if you're able to start to adopt some of this and start to troubleshoot and figure out how do you work it in your workflow, because every practice that I meet with now is completely slammed. There's no shortage of patients out there. And so there's not a lot of reason when you're going a million miles an hour to try to figure out how do you work this in your workflow until you pause for a second and try to think about where, what your expectations are going to be as soon as a year from now or, or two years, um, maybe even a year in Delaware. And so if you stop and ask yourself that question of, well, what am, I, what am I going to be judged on as a practice, then you start to see why telemedicine is important, how it's going to fit in, and you're going to really want to think about, um, you know, these big picture questions. So you're going to want your enhanced access to care. Um, if you're an NCQA, uh, PCMH, if you're a patient-centered medical home, if you're getting judged on these things, these are different steps. And these are things that you're going to want to be thinking about when you're thinking about if telemedicine is right for you. And I've never run across a practice who's, who's actually paused to think about how telemedicine is important for where they're going to be. No one has said, no, nah, it's just not going to work for me. Everyone's like, oh, wait, I have to think about, you know, even like uh, discrete patients. Like I just have a smaller subset of my population that I want to be able to talk to and connect with. Telemedicine is going to be the way to do that. Um, so it really is just hitting the pause button, even though you're going a million miles an hour and just trying to figure out 
why this makes sense, and it, it inevitably does. So you know, you're going to think through how do you actually do it, where are you going to put it into your day. Um, you know, patient cancellations. This is a great way to kind of connect with patients that you're trying to follow up with. Um, you know, just think about how this can work for you. Um, and ultimately, this really is about the patient and the population. We need to be making sure the data is very clear that a robust, especially primary care system, but access to care generally and the consistent continuity of care style, um, sort of traditional medicine that we think about, that, that's the gold standard. And, you know, we have insane healthcare cost growth rates. And if we're able to build this primary care infrastructure and a continuity of care with warm handoffs, if we're able to integrate behavioral health into primary care so that a patient comes into primary care and instead of being referred out, um, you know, you can actually do this warm handoff or even a first visit um, with the, the services that they need on the spot. Um, just thinking about it from a patient standpoint, it makes all the sense in the world. Um, and so I know that we're, we're running out of time here, so I, I want to make sure that we're able to, to take a few questions. So Catherine, thank you so much. Well, thank you so much, Drew. I really appreciate it. That was a, a really wonderful presentation. And we do have a few questions, so I wanted to, to get to those. Um, the first one was, um, you touched on some uh, the role of regulations and guidelines. Uh, can you revisit that briefly? Um, for instance, um, guidelines and practice standards as opposed to regulations and statute. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, um, you know, we talked a lot about Delaware's law today. Um, I, I didn't show any of the legalese about the regs, but, uh, you know, a good way to think about it is that the, the laws and the regs kind of create the rules of the game. Um, and so you've got a legislature that, that says, you know, we want to make sure that telemedicine uh, either proliferates or if you, if you have a, you could even have a legislature that views telemedicine very hostily, and, um, but they create the rules of the game. Uh, then the regulations get proliferated by, you know, your local board of medical licensure, um, your division of professional regulation, and they get a little bit more discreet. Um, but uh, setting all of that aside, really, the standard of care is what matters. It is really, I know I've said it a couple times, and I honestly cannot say it enough. And so your, your guidelines, your professional guidelines are going to be deeply important. Uh, you know, stay on top of that. Be talking to your colleagues, looking for ways that, you can uh, share best practices amongst yourselves because standard of care is not static either. It changes. Um, so as, as the tools change and, and uh, clinicians find innovative ways to, to use telemedicine and reach patients, that standard of care is going to adapt over time. Uh, and so those guidelines are going to be what's best reflective. And as, as a very brief caution, um, there, there was a time, especially in Delaware, where um, there were separate telemedicine like handbooks that were coming around um, and physicians were relying on, especially physicians, but other, other clinicians as well, were relying on them and saying, okay, well, this is, this is, I've been given this sort of telemedicine handbook and like this is, this is my, my Bible, kind of forgetting the touchstone that telemedicine, again, is not an other. Um, and so these, these books have been sort of cobbled together kind of like a, like a Franken guideline and so one of the, the, the regs that Delaware had to pass was to make it very clear that it's not about pulling a page from one book and a page from another book and, and, and kind of pulling guidelines out of context. There, there, there are groups out there that have um, focused and thoughtful um, arcs uh, of medicine and, and how it interacts with the new tools of, of telemedicine. And so um, really just so as much as guidelines are important, um, who's writing them are, are also very important. 
Okay, good. So we we shouldn't be using uh, Franken guidelines. I like that. Um, yeah. Um, okay. So good. So looking toward the future, uh, could you play futurist for a moment? What do you see? Where do you see the space going next? Since you're in this all the time, where do you see it going in the next decade? Yeah, I think what's going to be most important is that our 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 small practices, Delaware, our primary care in particular, is still delivered mostly by independent practices, something like seventy percent. I know that's not true everywhere, um, you know, and this is this is not an us versus them in terms of employed or small practice. Uh, the, the point being that I, I think as soon as our primary care infrastructure um, sort of jumps into this space and is able to recognize, oh yeah, like when Mrs. Jones comes in. You know, I've been really worried about, um, you know, maybe she, I'm worried about maybe she's uh, um, suffering symptoms of dementia. Um, you know, I want to make sure that when Mrs. Jones is in front of me, I can connect her automatically inside of my practice to a psychiatrist, to her cardiologist, um, to the pharmacy. And so that while I'm sitting there, I can make sure that Mrs. Jones or, or, uh, uh, or uh, even just like a, a patient uh, coordinator, you know, they, they have a whole separate uh, profession that's now burgeoning on these navigators, you know, just making sure that telemedicine fits for Mrs. Jones. Uh, I, I really think that as soon as our, our foundational infrastructure figures out that this is the way to go, and, and again, it's so hard from their perspective because they are just completely overwhelmed. I, I really feel for them. Um, but as soon as they figure out how this works um, and how it, it's um, both worth it economically, which it absolutely is, uh, and worth it for patient care, and that ultimately, as their patient population gets healthier and better, that in, in uh, payment 2.0 or 18.0, depending on how you're counting, uh, that's where the value is going to come in. And that's where you're going to really see continuity of care telemedicine take off. And that's when we're going to start to see our uh, cost of care uh, trend lines drop. And so I, I really think that it's, it's coming in a very positive way. Great. Great. Okay. So do you see... Uh, distinctions between the setting for telemedicine, maybe a hospital system versus a small practice? Yeah, so I, not necessarily in the implementation because, again, the medicine should be consistent. Uh, but what will change is that hospital systems, I, I think, could be leading the way because they have the administrative resources. So they, they have the people behind the desks who can take the time to go rail on the insurers and be like, no, really, the law says you have to pay for this, you have to pay for this. You know, if you're, if you're in a small practice, I mean, that, that gets owners pretty quickly. And so I, I really think that the medicine should be completely the same, but uh, I think it's, it's almost incumbent upon our, our systems in the areas to take a little bit of their administrative time and, and for the betterment of whatever state they're in, whatever community they're in, you know, they should be the ones banging on the doors, figuring out how to create um, consistent uh, uh, payment uh, uh, conduits between payer and clinician and practice. And so it, it's, it's it, and it makes perfect sense for them too. It's not just a question of, ma of being magnanimous, <laughs> um, but they're the ones who should be really taking the time now and, and uh, you know, forging the way. Okay. All right, generally, are there uh, practical tips or pointers that you frequently give practices you can call um, upon when you're asking about how they are, you know, on the ground or in the trenches using telemed? Yeah, so it's 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 always going to be practice to practice. So, um, you know, I talk primary care a lot because I'm, I'm a big believer in primary care. I just, I think that's kind of the answer to a lot of our, our systemic woes. Um, but, you know, if you're a, a um, 
I, know I talked about that that asthma program, but you know there's there's similar remote patient monitoring in uh, ortho or in cardiology. Um, you know, I, I have a lot of surgeons who come up to me and say, "Well, telemedicine doesn't make any sense for me. Like, I can't cut somebody open with a cell phone." <laughs> I'm like, you're absolutely right, and you shouldn't try. Please don't. <laughs> Um, but there's a lot of things that you can do around it. I mean, there's that discrete interaction, there's that surgery, but there's all the stuff before, and there's especially all the stuff a after. And so, you know, recovery is almost as important. So you want to make sure that your patient um, has access to, to all the answers to the questions that they have so they don't go back in the hospital. Um, if they are going through PT and maybe, uh, maybe the PT isn't working, but they don't know how to have that conversation uh, you know, they want to be able to connect back with you. Like, you want to make sure that the follow-ups, even though you're not necessarily billing for it, um, depending on your model and who you are, um, you want to make sure that that patient is getting the care that they need because ultimately it is going to come back to you. Um, and so you want to think about it kind of how the patient comes in and how the patient comes out. Um, and so the point being that even in surgery, even in dentistry, <laughs> you know, there are uses for telemedicine that are going to be very important uh, for population health and for patient follow-ups, um, and, and uh, you should really just uh, you know, think uh, uh, sort of flexibly and innovatively about this. Great. And do you have any other um, final bits of advice? I think we're about ready to to wrap up. I think we're get, getting to our our time. So so I wanted to to thank you so much for for being here. But did you have any any other final Final bits of advice for us? Sure, just be be bold. Uh, again, it's in the in the the inundated medical world that we're in right now, where where everybody's going really fast, and we've all got a million things to do. Um, you know, take the moment, figure out how this works for you. Have an open mind. You know, resist the knee jerk to be like it's just another headache. Um, it, it's really not. It's really not. It, it just you have to think about your patient population. Think about how it works. And, and just a little bit of time now, in, and if uh, you're in a fee-for-service model and you're not even in a parity state, figuring out how it can work for you, how it can work for your practice and for your patients is absolutely going to pay dividends. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, I really appreciate you you being here. I know that um, our attendees, if, if our attendees, if you have uh, other questions, make sure that you use uh, the contact information on the screen. Uh, to get in, in touch with Drew. Um, if you have questions, uh, further questions, you can also contact us and we'll forward those questions on. Um, but I really want to uh, thank you so much, Drew, uh, for being here. I appreciate that. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, attendees, uh, if you have any questions, as I said, uh, you can forward those on. Um, please remember that your PACOM and PMI CEU certificate will be emailed to you uh, within two days following the broadcast, there's no need to request it. You can register for future webinars and request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. And thank you for joining us.